Failure's okay. In fact, if you're not failing in our business and then you're not obviously pushing your limits and then you're not actually trying to push the boundaries of what you're doing, then we know you're not at the level we need to have you. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho, welcome to episode 76 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about failure. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And again, a very quick review to get us underway today. Awesome podcast, five stars by Oriana, blah, 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 from the US. Thanks for all the great information. I am going into my second season of racing and I can use all the help I can get. Keep it up. Very informative. By now, Oriana, the second season of racing, you'll have it all down. Last year was all experience. Now is when you can race for the win. But a reminder to everybody listening that if you do like the show, please take some time out to write a review because five stars make me... Thank you very much. Now, a couple of great bits of information that I came across this week. The first one is an interview from Sports Coach Radio. And I don't know if you have come across this podcast already, but I highly recommend it if you want to get behind the people that are behind the amazing performances that high-performance sports people do. But this episode covers cycling, and there's a great interview with Andy Sparks, and he's a coach that owns a company called Performance Unlimited, but it's also part of a program where the UCI has put together a training center at Majorca at the velodrome there where they combine all of the international teams and countries that don't really get a look in into cycling normally and they allow them to go and train there under the guidance of coach Andy Sparks. One really interesting thing to me is that Sarah Hammer, the American track rider, was one of the most successful athletes to come out of this program, which really shocked me as far as the USA not having a budget to do anything in the USA itself. But either way, I would definitely check out this interview. I've got a link in the show notes to his actual website and a YouTube clip that you can check out, which kind of breaks down a little bit more of what they do. The second thing that I found really, really fascinating is a clip of Roman Kruziger at the 2012 USA Pro Challenge in Denver, and it is a full data-driven time trial. So he's out on a time trial and you're in the bike behind him or the car behind him, but they have all the data on the screen, kind of like those Formula One displays where they have speed and braking, but they have it for his power and it is absolutely fascinating to watch a pro rider and all of their data across an entire race. So I highly recommend you check that one out as well. Race-wise, things are definitely starting to heat up. Well, they're super hot in Australia right now and with Cadell saying he's going to race the national championships in a week or so has been super big news in Australia and everybody is pumped to see what he can do. I don't remember the last time he rode a national championships. I think he's really just trying to make the most of his year this year because it is his last one with BMC and I probably expect the dude to retire and we will see how he goes at the Giro. Maybe that's why he's starting earlier. But either way, I am super excited to see him hit it out. But it will be a tough one against the heavily numbered team, Orica Greenedge. 
Okay, the nuts and bolts this week and your guide to understanding power training metrics, especially in your training and analysis. This week, it's all about the numbers and their context in a linear periodization training plan, but it doesn't mean that you can't apply this to other areas if you train differently. But depending on how involved you are with your training and analysis, it may be all new to you. So I'm trying to break down some new ones, some not so common ones, and then some ones that are just getting started. I believe it's super important to have an understanding of the metrics that I'm going to run through today, even if you are being coach because it's important to understand them and where they fit into your everyday and annual training plan to help you get the most out of the micro level and the macro level. I originally got David Johnston from cyclinganalytics.com onto the show to go through some common and not so common power training metrics. But what can I say? The file corrupted, so it was dead in the water, and I had to come up with this episode this week, which is a bit of a bummer that you're just stuck with me because David has a great analytical mind when it comes to what the calculations behind them are and then how they apply to training. At some point, I will get him back on the show. And just overall, if you're not familiar with cycling analytics, I can tell you it is my favorite, absolute favorite training program for building training programs, but also for analyzing data now. It doesn't have all of the metrics I'm going to be talking about today, but it's definitely getting there. I've got to say just about every week, a new feature is being added to it. So you can go and check that out at cyclinganalytics.com. But let's move on and first have a look at the building blocks of data interpretation and analysis. And the first metric I wanted to start with is training stress score. So the main role of TSS is to quantify overall training load from your power data by calculating a training stress score for every workout. It also provides a graphical summary of your training load over time, but we will get to that in just a moment. TSS is modeled after Dr. Eric Bannister's heart rate-based training impulse, or TRIMPS, or TRIMP, and it takes into account both intensity and duration of each training session. Individuals will tend to differ on how much they can tolerate in their training, the, which depends directly on your training background, your natural abilities, how much you want to put in, your mental stress, whatever it is. There is a scale that can be used, and the way I use it is for an approximate guide for the likely recovery after a certain type of workout. And knowing where you sit in relation to your fitness will dramatically help with your overreaching and recovery. So if we're talking about TSS points, Anything less than 150 is quite a low effort, and you should be right to go by the next day. Once we move up from 150 to 300, we're talking a mid-range effort then, so there will be some fatigue left over from that day into the next day, but by the second day, it should be gone. Of course, this isn't counting if you go for two rides in a row that may be 150 to 300 TSS points, in which case it's going to stretch out even longer. But it's when you start getting into the 300 to 400 it's high and the actual effects of that training ride are going to be in your system for at least two days and then if you get above 450 which is very high the residual fatigue will last several days and it's likely that if you're not trained to back up or you don't have the capacity to do this over and over again that you're really going to struggle if you just think that you can start training at that level in one or two days I wanted to start with the TSS because I believe it's kind of the base of what we look at as far as quantifying rides and rides over time. 
but it does have some other uses as well and people do use it for accumulative TSS per week or per month to help build up over time instead of using the traditional hours or kilometers or miles. The real reason that TSS kind of falls short for me is that it doesn't identify specific training adaptions, which we all know a super important part of cycling training, the specificity element of it. And it's more a measure of overall stress to the body from cycling training, which is another area that it fails to deliver, accounting for activity outside of training. As a semi-pro, our lives aren't all training and sleeping. So there may be stressful events or even just everyday life that isn't accounted for. There are better metrics to pick up for specificity, but not really anything for quantifying life as a whole. There is no CSS, child stress score, but TSS is a good, easy way to show you how much you train, just not how well. I think the biggest strength of TSS is the ability to quantify each training ride and then use this number to plan and observe an athlete's development over a season and longer. If you use training peaks, you'll be familiar with the performance management chart and the PMC combines the TSS over different time periods to get a graphical representation of a season's training. The PMC measures more than one type of training load. The first type I'll mention is the chronic training load, the CTL, which is the cumulative impact of training that has been done as long as six weeks ago or it's set at a default of 42 days and it takes into account the training rides you did six weeks ago and how they impact your performance today. Whereas the next metric, the acute training load, the ATL, considers the training done in the last 14 days. So if you take these two together, then there's a way that these work together and it's done through a stress balance metric, which is the training stress balance, TSB. And it completes the PMC chart by literally giving you a number of the balance between the stress of training and the restorative power of recovery or freshness is the other way that it's put. But in theory, you're going to perform better with a positive number because you're well rested, but you still have the fitness from your training. Of course, this can get out of hand and you could get a stupidly high positive number so you're fresh, but you have no training in your legs. So there is that balance. But really a good place for you to start if you're looking at your chart and you want to get something out of the PMC is to understand where your peak performances were or where your training bests were. And then look at the number or the lead up to that and just check the numbers and how they present themselves and where you sit. It may be positive three, maybe positive 10, maybe positive 20, and you had to be in the positive for two or three days to get there. There can be, there can be any different combination of numbers when it comes to this stuff. And so just breaking down how it directly relates to you will simplify it and make it a lot easier to keep an eye on it and look out for certain things over the season. Now, the next metric I want to look at is normalized power and it's really the final metric here that helps understanding overall performance and planning it's the smarter cousin of average power normalized power accounts for the variability in elevation wind and other external factors and it takes into account the way higher powers are disproportionately harder the idea is that the ride would be just as hard if this was the average power for the entire ride. And so the normalized power calculation is an estimate of the power that you could have maintained for the same physiological cost if your power output had been perfectly consistent rather than variable. 
And the variability could just simply be dropping your cadence and not pedaling just to go around a corner quickly or something pops out in front of you so you have to adjust your cadence. So it kind of smooths out all those bumps. And if you do have a power meter, you understand that it's so choppy because of all these factors that this basically just smooths it out. It's strength. It's really a more accurate way of quantifying the actual intensity of training sessions and races. But moving on now into the training element and where they all fit in, I'm going to introduce some new ones as well. But what I'm going to start with is you're moving through a linear periodization model. And let's just stick to the absolute basic one from Joe Friel here, base, build, peak, race. There is transition, but your metric is going to be how many pints of beer and how many pizzas you actually eat rather than anything that's useful. But starting at base, the adaption that you're looking for in base, you're looking for endurance, skills, and strength. And it's kind of the average of what a base period does entail. And through endurance, you're wanting to build up your endurance via zone two, heart rate and power. And the best way that I've found to look at the relationship between heart and power and then their relationship to endurance is through two metrics. The first one, efficiency factor, and the second one, aerobic decoupling. And I do believe they were both invented by Joe Frill, and he takes full credit for these. So looking at efficiency factor first, if your heart rate during an all aerobic workout rises while your intensity power stays the same, then the athlete is not operating efficiently and his or her aerobic endurance is questionable. So if you're just going out for a steady base ride sitting in zone two and your heart rate starts to drift at some point, so it means that it's going up and even if your power is just staying the same, it means that you're not operating efficiently because all of a sudden you have to do more work to maintain the same amount of power. And so it's the same is true the other way. If your heart rate remained the same, but then your power dropped off, it means that you're not operating efficiently. So to determine the efficiency factor, the software divides normalized power by average heart rate for the workout or selected workout segment in an interval. So by comparing the result ratios for similar workouts over several weeks, you can measure the improvements in aerobic efficiency. And to be reliable, the workouts need to be quite similar by making sure that all of the elements are alike. This is where you have to put yourself under test situations, and it would be best if you had a similar endurance ride that you did every single week that you could test against. And when I mean test conditions, I'm meaning you have to have the same breakfast, the same temperature, the same ride you're going on. Everything has to be similar, the same warm-up, your heart rate, because we are talking about heart rate you have to have the same caffeine amount that you would normally have so that you can control your heart rate and then match that to your power. Heat will actually increase your heart rate a little bit. So if there's a super hot day, then the results may be slightly different again. But effectively, what you're looking at is a ratio where you're wanting to, over time, from one session to the next, you're wanting that ratio to rise over the course of your training. And so if it starts rising, it means that your efficiency between those two factors, heart rate and power, are getting better. The second one that I'm looking at here is aerobic decoupling. And this is a way of measuring output-input relationship changes that take place during a workout as a way of determining aerobic fitness. It's not totally straightforward, though. There are many variables 
that affect decoupling and need to be controlled, just like I spoke about when it comes to efficiency factor. For this metric to provide useful information, the workout or segment must have been fully aerobic. So again, no spiking of your system. So if you just used the same rider using for efficiency factor and you pull the data from that, that's going to give you the best possible result. But what the software does here is compare the efficiency factors for the two halves of the workout or selected workout segment. The difference between the efficiency factor from the first half and the efficiency factor from the second is divided by the efficiency factor for the first half. Don't worry about that. I know it sounds complicated, but really it's just going to produce a percentage of increase or decrease in the second half efficiency factor. Because in simpler terms, it really just means that you take your power and heart from the first half of the session and divide it by the power and heart rate for the second half of the session. Joe Friel talks about liking to see athletes achieve a decoupling of 5% or less. Negative numbers are less than a positive 5% and may reflect outside variables such as a warm-up or warmer weather, but are assumed to be good results. So you want that 5%. And the way that I will work this into a training program, if I want to get three hours of endurance before I move on to any more intensity, I'll look at the percentage for the hour, and then for the two hours, and then for the three hours, and say when you're building up in the season, maybe you can only do one and a half hours under the 5% figure. But then slowly... You can keep checking each ride you do, whether it gets to two hours, two and a half, and three hours, and then you know you have that endurance base for three hours. Another part of base training is doing skills, and skills really only kind of relate to cadence, although I have been finding out recently there are other skills that are useful, but right now you may be familiar with doing some type of spin-up drill or one-legged training or whatever it is to try and get your efficiency and your cadence working better because it's really the only time you can spend focused on this because otherwise it's really just a waste of time when you move into more intensity later on in the season. But during training and individual sessions, you're going to be looking at cadence. Cadence becomes the most important thing here. And then analysis, and you come out of it What you want to be looking at is quadrant analysis and possibly left and right percentages of where the power is actually being input. That itself doesn't have a lot of information behind it, so it's kind of just gathering information at the moment. But quadrant analysis is really important in identifying the neuromuscular requirements of your event and if you match up to that. The short version of quadrant analysis is that it's useful for examining the neuromuscular demands of a ride. Essentially, it plots pedal forces versus pedal speed. We can not only see how much power we produce during a ride, but also gain additional insight into how we produce the power. And there's four quadrants on a scatter plot that is represented here. Number one, high pedal speed and high force, which is sprinting at high speed. Number two, low pedal speed and high force, which is hard effort such as track starts. Quadrant three, low pedal speed and low force. This is just absolutely doing nothing for nobody. And level four, which is high pedal speed and low force, spinning fast but easy downhill. So if you can identify the quadrant that you should be sitting in based on the event that you do, then when you're doing your cadence drills, you can start moving into that area. I know you're not actually producing any intensity or power yet, but you can do drills to help you train the specific cadence that you need to do to get the results you want when you do start adding intensity into the mix. The only other area of base is strength. And there are a couple of metrics when it comes to strength. And really, it's very simple. 
it's kilograms or pounds when it comes to the individual training sessions and the things that you're lifting and then the variability of those. But in analysis, you're looking at things like one rep max to kind of gauge how you're going over the season and whether you're getting stronger or not. It's quite simple, and this is really what a power meter is trying to do. It's trying to tell you your output, which is exactly what lifting a weight is. I don't really have much more to say about it, except that I wanted to include it there so we don't miss out on all of the metrics that are important to building a great season. But now, moving into the next phase in the linear periodization program, it's a build phase, and there is some variation of efforts that you do in a build phase depending on what your limiters or your weaknesses or whatever you want to train and the first one is power we can move into talking about intervals as well and if you're doing for example zone 5 intervals in your build then the way that you're going to measure this in the analysis and the changes over time not only testing testing is very important but through the critical power chart. And the critical power chart is just an outlay of all of your power over all the different time periods for any specific date or ride that you went on. So you can so you can cherry pick your best results from different times and then put that into a power profile, for example. Or you can see the development over time. If you're working on one block for four to six to eight weeks, then you can look over time in those weeks and see how the development actually progressed. It's a really good visual way of seeing whether the area that you're training is getting any better. And if you see on the curve itself, is if one little area is starting to bulge out and that's what you wanted it to do, that's really the best way that you can gauge how you're training is going. The other area that you're trying to maintain in a build is your endurance. You're moving up the intensity slightly though to sweet spot or tempo and again because they're steady state long intervals using efficiency factor and aerobic decoupling is really going to be the best way to see how your body is responding and becoming more efficient over time. So using it in the exact same way where you're just pulling out the efforts, whether they're 2 by 20 or whatever efforts they are, pulling those out over time and then comparing the efficiency factor first and then comparing the aerobic decoupling and seeing whether it is dropping off and you need to continue doing the sweet spot or tempo rides or whether every time that someone goes out, they, they sit below a decoupling of 5% or less. Moving into the next phase of a linear periodization training program, is the peak. And the peak can last anywhere from two to six weeks, depending on what you want to focus on. But part of the peak is doing race simulations. And this is where data and metrics really come into their own because you get a chance to see whether the energy you're expending will be similar to a race, whether the power output that's coming out of this is going to be similar, especially in critical moments, whether they're hill climbs or sprints, and you're able to produce what you believe will be enough to get you into the position to win or to win the race itself or whatever it is. But one of the things during training that people do look at, but I think it's very misunderstood, I won't go into it now because I really believe it deserves a lot more time, but that is kilojoules. And understanding the kilojoules or the energy expenditure that it takes to do your race properly. It's at its simplest level, how much fuel do you need to ensure that you're surviving that race and you can do it at your maximum 
and you don't bonk at worst or even just drop a couple of percentage points where then you're in danger of just not maximizing the training that you've done. An athlete's energy expenditure may be described as comprising of three components, not just the part where you're on the bike there are other parts that go into how much fuel you should be putting into your system but basically this is just to try and figure out how much fuel you need and you can make mistakes when you're in a practice race or you're doing a race simulation and you don't want to make mistakes when you're in the race itself so number one is the basal metabolic rate uh, which is the amount of energy required to stay alive and it makes up 60 to 80 percent of the total energy expenditure and is related to the amount of active tissue that the individual has number two the thermic effect of feeding the metabolic cost of the body processing food and number three the normal daily activity of training, competition, and this is usually the most variable component in the energy mix. So you have to, when you're thinking about fueling for training, for racing, for anything specific, you have to take into these three things. I know that's a bit of a tease not to go any further into it, but it really, really does deserve its own podcast or at least its own small section within a podcast. And then when it comes to kind of breaking down the analysis of any race simulation that you do, Quadrant analysis, again, is more important. Just to see if you're on target to where you were at the start of the season, it's kind of a little bit late to start working on cadence when you get into your peak area, but you do want to see a comparison and maybe make some fine-tuning adjustments, especially if it is something like a time trial where it could make all the difference when it comes to adjusting cadence for a better output based on your position or whatever it is. And moving to the final phase, the competition phase, where all the action happens and all the hard work will hopefully pay off. When we're talking about training or racing in this case, I really think that the new functional reserve capacity metric developed by Dr. Andy Coggan will be really, really vital here. And essentially, it's quantifying in specific terms to you what a match is. And you will know based on a kilojoule number how much above your FTP you can go before you start hurting yourself and possibly won't have the potential to recover, pull back and go again if it was a breakaway, for example. So something like that during a race or knowing that number going into a race will become really important in the future, I think, because it will change the way that you race and you just won't be racing as blind as you probably have been up until now. So that is a really, really exciting new metric that I'm looking forward to digging into. And basically, it just comes down to it's the total amount of work that can be done during continuous exercise above FTP before fatigue occurs. And the units are in kilojoules or joules per kilogram. When I get a file back after someone's done a race or I want to have a look at a race file that helps me understand what happened in the race, whether there was any problems, it turns into a really detailed analysis. So I don't have a lot of specific metrics when it comes down to this, but more some guidelines on what to look for when you are actually breaking down a race. And in race files, you want to look for things like when did someone burn the match? When did they exceed their functional reserve capacity? And then how that affected the rest of their race? Were they able to hold on for something? If they held back at a certain point in the race, could they have had some more left to go and actually attack after that point? Or you're looking at things like the maximum wattage need to sprint into a break or sprint at the end of a race, uh, maximum sustained power outputs over hard parts of races, 
really important ones like if you get dropped, what happened just before you got dropped and can you quantify or understand a little bit better what actually happened to that. So those types of things, uh, metrics and just having a look will give you a really, really good idea as to your performance and what to train for and watch out for in the future. Also, overall, when you're looking at any of these things, if you want to have a look at time in certain power zones and heart rate zones, because for training, it will give you an understanding of how much actual effort you did in those zones during your training week. So you're increasing them at an accurate 5 to 10% and you're not moving beyond that, which then pushes you into the danger zone of overtraining or overreaching. But also in races, is there an opportunity for you to reserve some energy and not sit in, say, zone 3 when you could have been in zone 2 by protecting yourself a little bit better, which would have left you more of a sprint or room to go into zone five to attack at the end of the race. So just looking at subtlety, like things like that, I think this really is more of an art form and and knowing what to look out for. So it takes time to kind of develop what you want to check on and then how you want to take that information and then move that into your system so that it can make a difference in the end. But definitely being aware that there's a lot of little things that you can look for really, really makes analysis fun for me. And it clears up a lot of questions. If you aren't there, you don't see what's happening. And if you weren't the person that did the race. So wrapping up here, there are a couple of other ones that are important, like intensity factor, some new ones coming out like pedal smoothness and torque effectiveness. I don't know the use of the new ones that are coming out. And intensity factor is useful, but I don't really use it a lot in my day-to-day analysis of rides or during rides themselves. I must say that it can get as complicated or as simple as you like. For me, I'm a visual person, so I would struggle with all of this information if I wasn't able to look at it. So I really recommend the best way of doing this is setting up some type of simple system that every time you want to look at a race or a training ride, you just go through certain steps. I have some steps that I've put together that I can share with you because I feel that it's important that you remain consistent in what you look for. Otherwise, depending on where you are or what you're doing, that you may miss certain things. And it's really important to pick up on the small things so that they don't get larger and larger as the season gets on. And for example, if you're not looking at cadence or your output early on in the quadrant analysis, then that could affect how you train and race later on in the season and you don't have time to make corrections or build habits that you should have been building right now early on in your base. So I really hope that I've introduced some new concepts to you or at least clarified some concepts if you've heard them and they're floating around a little bit more. If you do have any questions or you want to know anything about any type of metric and where they're useful in your training, I would love to answer your questions. So just send them through to the email at damien at semiprocycling.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So moving on to the tech hacks and product section, this week I've got a product. It's called Crank Tip and you can see the information at cranktip.com. I was going to write up something complicated about how it actually works, but it's too complicated for me to really explain to you. So I recommend just going over to the website and checking out the video that they've put together. I wish it was a lot easier to explain to you. And really, the idea hasn't cemented in my head as far as what it's trying to do is get the best of a short crank and the best of a long crank and combine that so that when you're pedaling with your rotation, you're maximizing what would be the long crank advantage and the short crank advantage, whatever those advantages are. So without getting into too much detail, just go and check it out. 
It's a new invention for cycling and it's very interesting and it is worth the time to check out and learn a little bit more on. Now, let's get to that quote from the top of the show. It's Andy Walsh talking about the high-performance framework at Red Bull. It's a one-hour presentation called High Performance Unlocking Human Potential. And Dr. Andy Walsh is the high-performance director at Red Bull, and he has some interesting lessons for you to learn on how they put together their program. They have over 150 sports they look after. Basically, they try and benchmark the best in the world. Then they work out how can they do it better? How can they move athletes to go up and up? up and up. They only look after the world's top athletes in their sports or ones that will get there soon. And once they get them there, they push them further and further. It's really interesting that a private company has taken this approach. And I've got to say, it is a great marketing move, but it's also great for these individual sports themselves because it puts all of these extra resources and money behind moving human potential further than it ever has before. So good on you, Red Bull, and well done, Andy Walsh. You are a super smart dude, and I really enjoyed watching this presentation. So if you've got time while you're sitting on the trainer, I highly recommend checking out this presentation because you definitely will learn something from it. And that's it for me this week. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 